0: Podcast land. Welcome to another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly semi-neighborhood tour guides uh, from Washington, giving you the interesting, scandalous, slightly spooky things to talk about. We are here in October. We have a spooky episode. And uh, first, though, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. (laughs) That makes no one else happy, but it makes us happy. So we do it. I love it. Uh, We are here for October. We're going to talk about some spiritualism. We're going to talk about the Civil War. It's going to be really great. But first, I want to just mention a couple of things. If you are in the D.C. area, you should come on a spooky ghost tour with us. We have several spooky themed tours. We have Ghosts of Georgetown. We have White House Ghosts, which is ghosts around the White House. Uh, We have Capitol Hill Scandals, which has kind of got some spooky themes to it. Uh, So we have uh, a lot of fun offerings for this sort of most wonderful holiday season. And by holiday, I do mean Halloween. We have lots of fun things. And uh, you should come and check us out in person because we actually are Even better in person, I think, than we are on the pod.
1: This is also truly, I think, one of the best times of year to be out and about in D.C. The weather is always so pleasant. In October, I think we get that little bit of crispness in the air, but it's not too cool, not too cold. The nights are always spooky. It's getting dark sooner. So if you enjoy the kinds of stories we're telling on the podcast, especially uh, around the things that are a little bit more macabre or um, a little bit more scandalous, one of our true crime scandals or ghost tours this season, perfect for you.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And so we are going to talk today about civil war and spiritualism. And so I want to just mention some of our other civil war era episodes that we've done on the pod. Uh, We have talked about Rose O'Neill Greenhow, actually right about this time last year. Uh, She was a civil war era spy. She's really cool. Uh, We have also talked about civil war. We've talked about a couple presidents and we will mention them, particularly Franklin Pierce and Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if you've heard of Lincoln, but he's he's kind of a big deal. He's come up on the pod once or twice. <laughs> Just a few times. Uh, we can also recommend The Curse of Robert Todd Lincoln, one of our early episodes. Uh, that's really fun. It's got a little bit of tragedy and sadness. Uh, and what's our other big Civil War episode? I feel like I'm forgetting one.
1: I did one on Edwin Stanton, one of my favorite Civil War figures.
0: You did that. Which perfect.
1: also kind of taps a little bit into grief and loss in this that era, which is going to
0: overlap with this episode. Awesome. I love it. So yeah, that's kind of we wanted to just highlight some of our previous episodes in and around this topic. And with that, we're going to talk about some spiritualism. So, Becca, what is spiritualism? Let's start there.
1: Yeah, so we are diving in a little bit into understanding a movement that takes hold in the United States, kind of on the dawn of the Civil War, but really booms during the Civil War era and then has sort of resurgences throughout the remainder of our history. Spiritualism essentially is a belief that spirits of the dead do exist, that there is a thin veil between the living and the deceased and that the dead are constantly communicating with us so that if we can be open, we can receive messages, and that there are some who are particularly keyed in to the spirit world and can serve as sort of conduits for those messages. There's also typically a belief in spiritualism that the spirits of the dead continue to evolve after death so that they can provide really powerful information, that they um, are often more knowledgeable than we are, and that they may in particular be the kind of, they may be peoples or uh, spirits you might want to seek if you are looking for uh, help with moral and ethical questions. And this is particularly true in the kind of early decades of spiritualism. There's this sense that by being open to the beyond, being open to those messages, um, at a time when our nation's struggling with these big moral, ethical issues, that these spirits can send us guidance on making good, strong decisions. So it's sort of a fascinating belief system. This is a very Reader's Digest into spiritualism in terms of that, because there are certainly various subsets and ways in which spiritualism has intersected with other religious practices, but this is sort of the standard kind of understanding of spiritualism. It originates uh, in the 1840s uh, in upstate New York primarily, but it is influenced by writing and philosophy and work of older Europeans, essentially people like Emanuel Swedenborg and Franz Mesmer, which is where we get the word mesmerize. Mesmerize.
0: Yes. So there's
1: influence from that, from uh, various sort of theologians and philosophers, but in terms of spiritualism in the United States, it really is the 1840s. And what really causes spiritualism to take its first kind of big notice for the average American is in 1848, it's two sisters, the Fox sisters, Kate and Margaret.
0: love the Fox sisters. They're so great.
1: This is kind of like... I mean, it just is fascinating to me. These are like two teenagers. They are 14 and 11 in 1848, and they experience what they call a strange and frightening phenomenon. Every night before bed, they hear a series of raps on the walls and the furniture, raps that seem to manifest with an otherworldly intelligence. So, you know, the girls are telling people that they're hearing these raps and that they can interpret them and predict them. And the uh, the rapping and the knocking will change as they direct it to change. So they feel as though they are having this communication.
0: And they live in a house that had been rumored to have been haunted in their town. And these are young girls, too. These are clearly like pure, innocent young women who are, you know, Obviously, they're seen as mediums. This is, you know, they're very above, seen as very above board. And it just, they're so fascinating because they get people that start coming to them and wanting to use their obvious gift. They're described as having this sort of being mediums, like a window to spirits. And, they are able to communicate with them through a series of raps and knocks and things that happen in their kind of house. And it is, it becomes a big sort of cottage industry. They are going to have people come from all over. They're written about in the newspapers. They become kind of a big deal. And
1: this is not like fringe by any means. There are very important people Of this era coming to meet with the Fox sisters. There are other important sort of trance mediums and things, but people like the author James Fenimore Cooper and the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison and Horace Greeley, who is the editor of the New York Tribune. These are important men of business and letters and intellect, and they are seeking out audience with the Fox sisters because they are fascinated by these young mediums. And of course, they start entertaining more, they start holding seances, which is a big kind of piece of the spiritualism puzzle. And so this becomes sort of the first sort of, I think, big catching fire moment for spiritualism. And it is not too surprising to me, and and we'll circle back to this occasionally, that Whatever may or may not have happened or whatever uh, people's belief in spiritualism, the Fox sisters or one of the sisters essentially will say later that they were just wrapped up in a mass delusion.
0: Yes. Basically, like many years later, and we're talking like 40 years later, like in the 1880s, they're going to expose themselves as frauds. Like the the Knox was kind of at their own direction. They kind of evolve from like a teenage prank. They kind of evolve into this thing that they can't escape. And basically this is all BS. Like it's all, they all kind of make this all up, but it really does have a lot of very sincere proponents. And they're also, it's going to be linked to a lot of early reform movements, like spiritualism generally, there's a lot of Quakers that get involved in this. And so you're gonna see the intersection of uh, abolition, women's rights, temperance, Uh, there's all sorts of early progressive Uh, movements. And New York at this time, like upstate New York is like a hotbed for all of this stuff. Like 1848 is also in upstate New York where Seneca Falls happens. Like this is called the burned over district. So you've got Mormonism and you've got the Oneida community and you've got all sorts of like radical and semi-radical thoughts coming out of this area of the world at this time. So this is like part of uh, a larger spiritual awakening that's kind of happening at this point. And I always like to caution people a little bit about laughing too hard at other people's beliefs in the past because there are people today that believe some very strange and wacky things and I would just not I would just like to say that this is part of the human condition I think that people believe want to believe something
1: I definitely think part of the reason that spiritualism catches on so much at this moment is there is, in the 1840s, 1850s, and as we approach the Civil War, a sort of bit of national reckoning reflection on morality, on what is right, what is wrong. What is this country with its doctrine of liberty and freedom? What does that mean? How does that work in practice? Many spiritualists will advocate for the fact that because these deceased have evolved beyond, they can actually lead us lead us as a country into a better place. They can guide us into making the right choices, the right decisions. And so, again, it's not surprising to me that we see this at an intersection of a number of other movements. And there are some really interesting figures uh, that come out of this era. I like to mention Pascal Beverly Randolph, who is just sort of a fascinating man in and of himself. He's probably one of the most prominent spiritualists who's also a very ardent abolitionist. So as he's traveling and lecturing, uh, he is a trance medium. So he goes into trances to convey the messages from beyond. Often it is in sort of parallel with discussing the need for abolition. And so that's when he is receiving his messages, they're often to address this question of abolition. And what makes him unique, I think, in this movement is that he is Black, he's a free black man. Um he's, uh, with some mixed birth in his background because he descends from like the Randolphs of British Randolphs. But the fact that he's in this movement as a free black man is sort of unusual. And he ends up also writing not just about spiritualism, but some of the earliest writings about sexuality and sexual health. So it's all it's all sort of happening at this time where a lot of things, a lot of things are coalescing. However, we want to turn it a little bit more directly to the Civil War era. Because the Civil War and the immediate sort of years after is when spiritualism is going to become not just something that a handful of intellectual elites on the East Coast are experimenting with, it's going to become something that becomes appealing to many, many Americans.
0: And you can see why immediately, right? Like the Civil War is this sort of great chasm that our, na- this trial that our nation goes through. And by the end of the war, the official death toll that you'll hear is 620,000 Americans. Historians actually believe that that number is staggeringly low. Uh, there are historians that have credibly given estimates as far up as 750,000 people. And that's a, an enormous amount of loss in four years. That's uh, about 2%, if not more, of the total population in the United States who were considerably smaller back then. And it's just a lot of people who were here four years ago and are not here now. And people are dying, young men are dying, which is not usually a demographic that particularly uh, is uh, dying in great numbers. And there aren't that many families that have not experienced some kind of loss, that haven't known someone, that have gone off to fight. And so it's a lot of trauma in a short amount of time. And you can kind of see, I think, how people are really drawn to want to seek not only comfort for this like this enormous loss that we've suffered this trauma that we've been through as a as a country as a people but also people want to reach out to their loved ones like if there's a way to talk to these people who've died in the great beyond you can see how that would be comforting give some sort of closure and meaning to their death and so spiritualism really becomes a big coping mechanism I think for a lot of people Absolutely. And I think it's sort
1: of partnered with something we've addressed a little bit uh, on the podcast in this era, but a real lack of understanding of mental health, a lack of understanding of grief and how to process it. We have to remember, too, the Civil War in terms of how the administration of information is done is very different from today. You know, we sort of have, I think, images, especially if you watch a lot of World War II movies, of like, You've got the people from the War Department, and they knock on the door, and they're going to tell you that you lost your loved one. The Civil War, there's just nothing. Um, there's not enough organization or administration. So many soldiers are just missing, right? They go off and then don't come back. So so many families are trying to just figure out what happened to their loved one, trying to get confirmation on if something happened, trying to get that documentation could take years. The soldiers' bodies were not brought back home, right? They're buried at these battlefields or in cemeteries that that pop up around battlefields, so families don't have closure. So it is not at all surprising to me that this is something that many Americans turn to, that this has an appeal to say goodbye, to get that closure, to connect, to try to understand what has happened to their loved one. And I, I don't think at all we appreciate the devastation of the Civil War enough on a national scale, the psychological trauma that war in, in parts onto this country.
0: Yes, I completely agree. Up to a third of battlefield deaths are unidentifiable, which means that there's no way to get information to their families at all. Like there's just no, there's nothing. And it just, you imagine someone leaves for war and then you never hear from them again. Like it just must have been so uncertain and terrible and uh, wondering sort of what happened to them and where they died. And the idea that you want to answer some of these questions is a very human thing like you want to be you know have as much information about them and where they passed and what they were doing as you possibly can it's sort of helpful and people's grieving process and it just i can't only imagine how traumatic this must have been for so many people sending their loved ones off to war
1: it's very hard to kind of get a firm number of how many practicing spiritualists there actually were during the civil war and the immediate years following because there were lots of people dabbling in this who may not have been full-time practitioners, Um, there's just not good documentation on it. Historians peg it anywhere between a few hundred thousand spiritualists in the country at the time, all the way up to 11 million, potentially. So this was certainly something that was becoming more mainstream, certainly something that was becoming uh, more prevalent, particularly in cities. Um, So if you were living in a city, there was a good chance there was at least a couple spiritualists who were practicing probably some um, trance mediums um, who were offering to hold seances or connect with loved ones. So this was becoming something that was pretty widespread and fairly accepted, although we certainly see that some notable people's participation with spiritualism certainly opens them up to criticism mocking and whatnot
0: like the next person we're going to talk about (laughs)
1: like the next person (laughs) so if you have even just the littlest inkling of spiritualism during uh, the civil war era usually what people think of is mary todd lincoln she is sort of one of the most notable practitioners of spiritualism. And we'll talk about why in a moment and where she goes and what she does. But I'd like to mention Jane Pierce, who is the wife of Franklin Pierce, First Lady Jane Pierce. She is actually the first person to host a seance at the White House. And again, just to speak of trauma, Uh, she and Franklin Pierce will lose two children very young, very young into their kind of infancy young children. So by the time that he is running for president, they only have one child left, an 11 year old son, Benny, who they are absolutely adore. Franklin Pierce wins his election in 1852, but while he is president elect, they are going to be traveling a short distance. It's a short train ride in Massachusetts and the train that they are on derails there is only one casualty of this derailment, their 11-year-old son, Benny, Um, which is just really traumatic, right? To lose your, your only living son, to witness his death. He's killed instantly, but Franklin Pierce has to sort of cover the body with a sheet. Jane Pierce sees her son in this unfortunate condition. So they are both entering into the White House, grieving this loss. And Jane Pierce, who is like a proper New England lady, she's just in so much pain that she is interested in figuring out a way to connect and to beg his forgiveness.
0: Oh my gosh. Jane Pierce never really recovers from this loss. She doesn't attend her husband's inauguration because she's just, she's so upset and grief-stricken and angry, and there's all just so many things, and it never, like, this mars his entire presidency. He drinks a lot and a lot because of this grief. Like, we talk about this extensively in our presidential drinking episode. The Pierce's just never... I mean, there's no way to recover from a trauma like this at all, but like this shadow, casts well, cast a shadow over their entire presidency and the entire rest of his life. And he kind of, Franklin Pierce descends into alcoholism pretty quickly, although in fairness, he was probably well on his way even before his son dies. He seemed to have been a big drinker. Uh, but Jane Pierce is going to hold a seance in the White House. She wants to communicate with Benny. She wants to ask for his forgiveness and to make sure that he's okay and to sort of get some sign that he is, you know, with her, that she feels his presence around her and she wants some kind of confirmation of that.
1: And she doesn't just have any old person come perform the seance. She invites the Fox sisters to come and be her spirit medium. So that's how famous the Fox sisters are. In the 1850s, if you're thinking you're in the White House and you want the best spiritualist, this is who you get and this is who comes. Now, um, whether or not this was a successful endeavor, uh, Jane Pierce believes it is. She believes that after whatever occurs on the seance, she finds relief. She will write her sister and say that after the seance, two nights in a row, her beloved son Benny comes to her in a dream And he basically absolves her, uh, says that the accident on the train is not her fault and that he loves her. So it brings her comfort. It brings her some closure. Whether the Fox sisters successfully connected her to the spirit of her lost son is open to debate, but she certainly receives something important from it. And I think that's an element of spiritualism that is really important, is that if it provides comfort, if it provides particularly in this era, sort of these grieving, overwhelmingly grieving women, mothers and wives with, with some closure after the trauma of these losses, there's something to be said for that.
0: I agree with that. I mean, it, you know, it is, it's going to come out later. The Fox sisters are bilking people out of some money and that's obviously not really great, but I feel like it's not harming people necessarily. Like Jane Pierce seems to have benefited from this and, if you're able to give comfort to a mother who's grieving that's in my book, that's not the world's worst outcome. I feel like like there's some trauma there. And there's a lot of like a lack of understanding of mental health and grief. And I feel like if this is going to help her to bear the burden of her son's loss a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm okay on that level with that. But Mary Todd Lincoln is the same, does the same thing. So if you listen to our Robert Todd Lincoln podcast, The Lincolns have a rough time of it with their children. They have, by the time they come to the White House, they've already lost their one son, Edmund. They come into the White House with three kids. And then Willie dies about a year. Willie is their middle boy. He dies about a year after uh, Lincoln becomes president of what we think is typhoid. And Mary Lincoln has, I'm a big Mary Lincoln apologist for a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of undiagnosed mental illness with her. It's probably some postpartum depression. Uh, definitely she sort of seesaws in between depression and kind of, there's a lot of ups and downs with her. And a lot of these losses cannot have helped that. And there is no sympathy for her ever and she, in some ways, doesn't help herself. She's a little bit aloof and she kind of, she's a little bit of a spender. Mary Lincoln's really fascinating. I have a thing for her. Um, but she is obviously grief-stricken at the loss of her child. And she's going to spend weeks in seclusion. And then she's going to be introduced to practitioners of spiritualism.
1: And let me jump in for a second and say, Mary Todd Lincoln is really traditionally, conventionally more religious than Abraham Lincoln. She has been raised Presbyterian. She takes her faith quite seriously. She attends services and has ever since she was a child. And she really considers herself a woman of faith. Losing Eddie and then Willie really challenges a lot of those beliefs. She does not, she cannot, I think, accept that Willie has gone to God, right? Um, she wants to stay with him, she wants him to stay with his family. So when the, when the idea, the opportunity, the presentation of this belief system that says, no, your beloved son isn't with God, he's still here, and you can connect with him and spend time with him. That is really, really appealing to her. And, you know, it's interesting, because she is so serious about being a Presbyterian. And then when Willie dies, she is willing to kind of go, wait a second, this, this isn't working for me. I, I want something that's going to help me connect with my son that I'm still very, very much mourning and grieving. And so she does make a somewhat radical shift in her personal belief system after the death of Willie to really
0: embrace spiritualism. And she's going to come into contact with a family called the Lorries. And they're someone that both, I'm pretty sure, you, I know you talk about them on your Georgetown tours. I talk about them too. Their house still stands in Georgetown. And the lorries are spiritualists. They do seances. They can, they're mediums. They can connect with people in the great beyond. And Mary Lincoln is going to go out to Georgetown, which in those days was a little bit more of an endeavor than it is today. And several times, sometimes more than like about once a month for years after Willie's death. And she's going to receive a lot of comfort from this. She will, they will help her to communicate with both of her dead children. And she will talk about how she has this image of the two of her two boys holding hands in the great beyond. And it gives her an enormous amount of comfort, knowing that they're together, that they're taking care of each other, that they're okay. It gives her a lot of peace. And she also has seances like Jane Pierce did in the White House. She'll bring mediums into the White House and have uh, seances sort of in the White House. It is not known for sure whether Abraham Lincoln participates, but it is sure that he knew that they were happening. So he knew that she was bringing these uh, into the White House.
1: She is also going to host seances in the White House. She will attend seances elsewhere. She will also hold seances At Lincolns Cottage. So the Lincolns, if you've been to D.C. or if you're local and haven't been out to uh, the the cottage and the soldier's home, it's a really fascinating glimpse into the Lincolns' life because this is where they would often go to escape the oppressive summer heat and the mosquitoes and like the smell of the canal through the heart of D.C. So then go up to this cottage. Um, This is where Lincoln will use time to reflect. He'll draft the Emancipation Proclamation there. Um, But this is where the family spends a lot of time. And for Mary, because she kind of gets her away uh, from the hustle and bustle, it's a place where she thinks would be very receptive for communicating with her dead son. So she will also host seances at the soldier's home. And again, uh, as Rebecca was sort of saying, President Lincoln is, I think, very skeptical of all of this. I think he sees the potential for his wife to be taken advantage of. She is such a famous woman. She is so grief stricken that there are certainly people with very good intentions, but there are also people looking to make money, right, to to trick and con. That's true in any era and almost any practice, but it is particularly true in spiritualism. Lincoln's particularly suspicious of this man who calls himself Lord Colchester, uh, who claims to be an illegitimate son of an English Duke, who will be a pretty notable practitioner of spiritualism in D.C. Uh, He will host the seances at the soldiers' home particularly, but he also attends seances at the Lori's home. And Lincoln is skeptical enough of this guy, Colchester, to basically go to Joseph Henry, who is the first secretary of the Smithsonian, a very well-respected scientist, and basically asked to investigate him. Henry has trouble finding any evidence that Colchester is a con, so he turns to a man named Noah Brooks and basically has Brooks sort of follow Colchester, attend events, until he's able to basically unmask Colchester is exactly that, a con artist. Um, When this happens and Colchester sort of found out, he turns around and tries to blackmail Mary Todd Lincoln essentially to keep his secret. Uh, Luckily, Joseph Henry, Noah Brooks, uh, these sort of important scientists will intervene and sort of get Colchester just out of Mary Todd Lincoln's life. But there were unfortunately people who preyed on the fact that this is a woman who is just grieving and in pain. And and these people prey on others. There's unfortunately a threat as well during this time of the civil war. And just after where so many people are so desperate that they're willing to part with their hard-earned money. They're willing to turn money over to anyone who can make a promise of connection with the beyond. And, you know, some of them get caught out. Some of them don't.
0: And it's kind of like, I liken it to quack doctor's like there's, you know, people are just so like when you get a medical diagnosis that's terrible, particularly at this time when they don't have like the the medical knowledge that we do. Like you are want you want to go to anyone who can give you the answer that you want, which is that things are going to be okay. You want someone to tell you that there's hope that there's com- to comfort you in some way. And I kind of liken it to the, that same idea. These are like snake oil salesmen, uh, in a way, uh, the lorries are going to eventually be found out, uh, to be frauds. Uh, the people that, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln goes to see in Georgetown, the Fox sisters are much later exposed as frauds. Lord Colchester is a fraud. So there's a lot of ample opportunity for con men, uh, to sort of take advantage of this situation. And It is really unfortunate that that's, you know, I mean, it's savvy of Lincoln to sort of kind of get involved and sort of see what's happening here. But it really is just such a a real glimpse into how terrible people will will want to take advantage of these grief-stricken wives and mothers. And if it's happening to the first lady, imagine who else it's happening to, right? Like if it's happening to the most, probably the most famous woman in America, who's got scientists in the Smithsonian at her beck and call, like imagine what these people are doing to grieving widows in wherever in the middle of the country who've lost a, a husband or mothers who's lost a son in the Civil War. like. And I
1: could just as a little bit of like Lincoln trivia curiosity, <laughs> just a little bit. Colchester really makes the rounds in Washington, D.C. society. Um, so he's connecting not just to politicians, but other public figures, including the actor John Wilkes Booth. Booth in 1863 develops a bit of interest in spiritualism. His sister-in-law passes away. Um, and you can imagine for, for the theatrical side of someone like Booth, where spiritualism would have an appeal. And so he connects with Colchester and actually attends a number of Colchester seances and events. Although to the best of our knowledge, this doesn't overlap with Mary Todd Lincoln at all, but both Mary Todd Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth will attend seances performed by the same person. And both from very different perspectives dabbling in this world of spiritualism in DC during the war.
0: I did not know that. And it goes to show you that there's literally nothing about Lincoln that Becca does not know. It's really the truth. She's amazing. (laughs) There's just all those weird little overlaps. Well, DC was also a much smaller town, too. Like, yeah. DC, like pre Civil War, DC was maybe 40,000 people. And obviously, that number is going to go up as you've got people coming to work for the war. But, like, DC is nowhere near the size that it is today. And so, it is not uncommon. Like, the it's smaller physically. So these people are on top of each other. It is not particularly strange. I feel like that there would be some through line or several through lines. And I emphasize this to people on my tours. Like people always mention that, oh, like John Wilkes Booth and Lincoln intersect. It's like, well, yeah, like DC's not big. You know, there's not a lot of room for people to separate in those days.
1: So um, Mary Todd Lincoln, of course, even after her husband's death, she continues to remain interested in spiritualism. This is something that she keeps through her the rest of her life. Uh, She reportedly actually joined a commune of spiritualists uh, when she traveled through New England as a widow for several days. Um, She also visits a man named William Mumler who was known as the spirit photographer. He sort of pioneers this technique of uh, locating and highlighting images of spirits uh, in portraits using sort of a pretty sophisticated photography technique at the time. Um, So people would go to visit Mumler and sit for a portrait and hope to see the spirit of a loved one and he could make those spirits appear on the photograph. And there is a sort of well-known photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, but Mary Todd Lincoln sits for Mumler and sure enough, he manages to create this image. I'm, I'm gesturing as though you guys listening can see me do this, uh, where Lincoln, President Lincoln's sort of ghostly image is right behind Mary Todd Lincoln's left shoulder. Uh, and that makes the rounds frequently on the internet. Oh, I bet it does. Uh,
0: (laughs) And also, this is the Victorian era. Everybody's obsessed with death and spiritualism. We're also right at the dawn of um, a lot of embalming techniques. So there's the the idea of your loved ones and the dead are very much with us. There's a whole culture around like mementos of people who have died. So this is all kind of coalescing around the same point. And it's kind of worth mentioning that this is very much part of the broader obsession with you know, Victorian obsession with death. And, you know, I feel like we're just at this moment where science is improving to the point where, you know, your medicine is getting better and better, but it's not quite there yet. And so you have a lot of confusion about death and what happens and how, you know, what happens after you die and people want to communicate with loved ones. So it's really this fascinating intersection of religious belief and cultural um, happenings. And it's really great.
1: Now, uh, not everybody in this era is really on board with this. There are going to be plenty of skeptics. There'll be people like Lincoln, um, who we sort of talked about, uh, digging digging into this and trying to uncover frauds. Another sort of well-known skeptic in this era is Frederick Douglass. Douglas will write several letters in his lifetime sort of uh, calling out or criticizing those he sees as con artists, as people sort of snake oil sale, selling this sort of like, oh, I, I can connect you with your your dead loved one. So Douglas becomes sort of this outspoken uh, uh, critic of the spiritualist community and the way in which they're preying uh, on those during the war. Civil War era is one of the biggest periods for the practice of spiritualism in the United States, but we've had other eras where we've seen it sort of come and go from prominence. It really will just follow a surge from the Civil War, honestly, through the end of the century. By the 18th, 90s. It's believed that there are about 8 million practitioners or so in the United States and Europe. Uh, I think what you said, Rebecca, about it intersecting with sort of Victorian ideas of mourning and death is very, very true. Another era, though, where we see a renewed interest in spiritualism in the United States is the First World War, which, again, makes a world of sense. We talk about this in our World War I episode. And so uh, it's not surprising to me that that's another era where this becomes.
0: No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Like this, you know, you're dealing with a lot of grief and loss. There's a a real need to figure out what happened, And I can see that really coming back, the spiritualism coming back into vogue in the First World War makes total sense to me.
1: And then because it comes back in vogue with the First World War, we get probably one of the most famous debunkers of spiritualists. And I really would like to do a whole episode on this guy at some point. The fact that we haven't is crazy. But Harry Houdini, Houdini becomes really the guy in the 20th century who makes it his job to unmask frauds. To unmask psychics, mediums, people who are purporting to connect, and he understands better than anybody because of stagecraft and sleight of hand and magic how easy it is to trick the eye, to trick the mind. Uh, And he will go around and just travel around. He turns his energies really away from entertainment to debunking.
0: Harry Houdini fascinates me. He's on our list. Like I super like, I've always been interested in Harry Houdini. He's just so amazing and he's kind of in this moment like a badass like because he understands entertainment because he understands all of these sort of sleight of hands and tricks and he understands people are seeing what they want to see and that's a real big part of this people believe what they want to believe and what they want to see and people are looking for an answer that they want out of these questions that they're asking and so he's going to really go around and say yeah I understand that you think that this is real but like Uh, that's kind of false. Like I can tell where they're, you know, inserting things at the right moment or tricking you. And so Harry Houdini is going to do a lot of like debunking of a lot of this stuff. In addition to also being really strong and really an amazing entertainer and generally a badass.
1: (laughs) And I love, I mean, this, this gets into a a little bit of a sidebar, but this whole debunking of Uh, mediums and spiritualists and psychics actually causes a huge break in his friendship with Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, who writes Sherlock Holmes, uh, because he thinks that Houdini is a spiritual, you know, he thinks that Houdini can do all of these tricks because he is paranormal. And so Houdini's like, wait, what? You think that I can do this because... I've got some sort of weird, you know, spirit world guiding me. And so it causes this huge riff in their friendship and a huge public break. And yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle is just like heartbroken that uh, Houdini wouldn't even pretend to be paranormal to sort of just like make him feel better about believing it. So we'll definitely do this is now convince me we're going to do a whole episode on Houdini. And in that episode, we'll talk about Houdini's wife's seances. We'll save that for then. yeah. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, uh, spiritualism very much still exists today. There is a, a national association and organization. There are spiritualist communities. If this is something that is of interest to you, it's very easy to find spiritualism. Here in the Washington, D.C. area, we have in Georgetown, a spiritualist church. It is called the Church of Two Worlds. We do visit this church on uh, one of our Georgetown tours uh, from the outside. The Congregation of the Church of Two Worlds was founded in 1936. So this is coming out of the Great Depression era. They moved to their current location in 1960. um, And the building is actually quite beautiful. It was built in 1906 as a Methodist church. It's really, really lovely. Um, But the Church of Two Worlds is exactly what it It says, it purports to be, it is a a church where you can explore both the living and the dead. There are mediums that attend services at the Church of Two Worlds. I will put in the show notes one of my favorite articles. About six years ago, a Washington Post writer, Kathy Alter, uh, attended a series of services at the Church of Two Worlds and documented her experience. I'll put that in the show notes. But if you are interested, that is right here in Washington, D.C., right in the heart of Georgetown.
0: It is. It is. And that's kind of spiritualism in the civil war. There are, it's really just as an overview. There's a lot of different ways you could go into this, but um, we wanted to talk about something with a, a spooky edge for you for uh, our October. And um, yeah, thanks for coming along with us. As always, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitters. We're at Tour Guide Tell. Uh, you can find us on the Facebooks and the Instagrams. You can also email us tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love to hear from our uh, listeners if you have suggestions of a topic, something that you want more information, you want us to drill down on, something we've already talked about. Or something completely different that you want us to chat about. Um, we would love to hear from you. And thank you also to our patrons. We have the best patrons ever, and they are getting patron exclusive uh, episodes every month. Last month, September, the one they just got was about why I hate Woodrow Wilson. And let me just tell you, it is a pretty epic rant, and you're gonna wanna get it on that one. So Woodrow Wilson's the worst. Anyway, uh, you're gonna pay- thank you to our patrons. You are the best. And we will be back at you in another uh, couple of weeks with another October episode. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Bye,
1: guys. (laughs) See you next time. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin, Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is tour guide tell all. Until next time.